try that on. Go, go, step into Steven Spielberg's directing chair and direct an Indiana well, Jones movie let's around. Add one more layer: a global a pandemic global, during a global <laughs> pandemic. Um, but uh, um, somehow putting, putting uh, you to the test. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm still here. Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now. Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, I'm Josh Horowitz, and I'm welcoming one of my favorite filmmakers to the podcast, a man who has never shied away from a challenge, a Johnny Cash biopic, that's easy, kill off Wolverine and earn the respect of the critics, fans, and the Academy? No problem. How about stepping into the shoes of the most celebrated filmmaker ever to bid adieu to maybe the most iconic adventurer in all of cinematic history? James Mangold is the man for the job, and today his job is also to be on my podcast, finally, Jim, it's Hallelujah. great to see you, man. I'm we here. did it. You're there. <laughs> um, it's good to see you, man. Um, you. Somehow you, you, you've eluded the podcast for a while, but I'm, I'm excited to have you, and I'm I, doubly I, excited. I've been eluding it. I've been unaware of my eluding it. Oh. I've been living. I lived in England and around the world for the last year and a half, making this huge un undertaking. So uh, I'm it's sorry. all good. I, I've, I've been giving you trouble. No, all is forgiven. We get a chance to just talk about Indiana Jones for about 45 minutes. That's a that's Love not it. a tough day at the office. Um, all right. So let's let's just dig right into it, man. Um, you know, this this task at hand is a monumental challenge, to say the least. What's it take to to officially say yes to after you weigh all the options to say, I'm going to dive in? Is it a little insanity, a little hubris, a little bit of like, wait, if I say no to this, I'm going to regret it the rest of my life. Put me in your head a little bit. Well, when I first got contacted by Harrison and Stephen and Kathy, and this idea was first floated to me, um, I was, of course, intrigued, but also freaked out um, that it, because it seemed like, um, you know, pinch hitting for Babe Ruth seems like a, a no-win proposition on some levels and the um uh so the but it was it was the power of the company i was in that did more to get me to jump aboard than anything else what i mean by that is just that almost all the people involved with these films are heroes of mine yeah. uh and and with the exception of Harrison, I really didn't know any of them very well um, uh, until this process began. And there was such warmth and such a sense of support and such an absence of political intrigue or, or some kind of corporate burden. Um, it just felt like everyone wanted to make a really good movie. And, um, and it seemed like there would be a tremendous amount of freedom to do that. So the idea of getting to work intimately with lifelong cinematic heroes, um, with a canvas like Indiana Jones, with an actor like Harrison, who was uh, already a friend of mine and someone who I got to know pretty well, um, it's it seemed like I could see on a very personal level a reason to do it, just to have this experience of working yeah. with all these legends. I mean, including John Williams writing the score, which I hoped he would, you know, at, at that point, 90, now 91. Um, the, the, the really, the, 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 
the thing, the barrier that had to be crossed is when I saw the script that they had, I realized why the thing hadn't gelled yet, which is there was nothing innately wrong with it, but it didn't seem to be about anything, which is not necessarily out of the ordinary for movies these days. Right. Um, but, but for me, I just didn't know why I'd be making it other than the company and the IP and that the studio wanted another Indiana Jones movie. I didn't understand why it needed to exist. And, right. and yeah, and you need that to get through the tough days. If you're going to commit two and a half years of your life, sure, it's a yes. fun experience to hang out with these guys, but like to keep the the fire lit. You yes, need to... you, need, you need to, honestly, I needed to know what I'm doing because if I'm making a movie where all I'm doing is trying to make it cool and spectacular, but I don't know why, what it's about. Yeah, I, I'm kind of like a man in the woods without a compass. I'm kind of a pointless director. Um, the the so what occurred to me very strongly um, was a kind of dose of a, a bracing dose of honesty that I just tried to see if I unloaded this on everybody whether they'd all just run for the hills or stay with me. And what that was was just that the strong feeling that this needed to be a movie about getting old. And that this is a the, I, my star is pushing eighty at that point pushing now firmly in in the grasp of it and the and there's no way around that you can't make one of those pictures with a guy pretending he's forty five but yeah. in his late sixties there's no way there's no fudgy room he's an old guy and and that doesn't mean you make the movie about oh my back aches it means you make the movie about someone in the final chapter of their lives. Who is who is reckoning with all that's happened and what is left and to happen and the and um, and to me the second I could envision that the second it became a more honest film, which I feel these films have always been really at at their core entertainments, but they always were about something and um, and. So what I presented them was this idea that the movie would be about time and that therefore, because I'm a kind of, as you know me, I'm kind of a, a, a brainiac academic about movies and every Indiana Jones movie, the relic isn't just a relic, right. but the relic embodies a kind of question or mysticism or magic that relates to the theme of the whole picture and that, um, you know, a movie about fatherhood ends up getting the blessing of one of the Knights of the Round Table, a movie about uh, a kind of Asperger's-y professor who hides in books ends up being about him having to confront the power of God inside a golden box. The Each movie, the relic is not just valuable or important or magical, but that the magic itself and the kind of magic it possesses ends up relating to the actual theme of that picture. And well, if that makes any sense. So I no, it does, yeah. Them, so I confronted all of them with this kind of slew of ideas. And to my great surprise, the, uh, none of them ran away. And, <laughs> and they all seemed to smile and get excited. And at that point I said, well, then here's the other problem. You have this movie dated in a way that I'd have to generate the script right. for this movie that doesn't exist on paper yet in the next 24 days. So we we need to push the picture. At that point, that became a much bigger powwow and they had to say goodbye. Meaning I had to say, they said, so you won't do it if we don't give you significantly more time. 
And I said, a year. And, and I said, that is the deal. And they went away and I didn't hear from them for a few weeks. And then they came back and said, okay, um, uh, they might've gone out to every other director in town. Maybe they just confabbed among themselves or maybe, um, or maybe they just had to go upstairs to Bob Iger and Alan Horn and Alan Bergman and go, can we push the picture? And are you okay with that? And um, whatever had to happen when they came back and said, we'll do it. It was also fortuitous because the Bob Dylan uh, movie, the movie I was making about um, Bob Dylan in the early 60s was also falling apart due to um, COVID. Was, that was the right. moment of the pandemic landing on us. And it did seem to me that if they could agree, and I, that probably helped them push the picture as well because we were all facing the mystery of what movie production was going to be. Um, although we ended up shooting the movie at the height of the pandemic anyway, but the, um, which try, try that on, go, go step into Steven Spielberg's directing chair and direct an Indiana well, movie around one more layer during, during a global <laughs> pandemic. Um, but, uh, um, somehow putting, putting you to the test. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm still here. You're um, still here and you made a great, and I have, and by the way, and you'll get the gist of this in the course of this conversation. The movie is fantastic. I've, I haven't said it already. Um, it is emotionally resonant. It is the first Indiana Jones movie that has made me weep. It is a, a soaring adventure and um, it works. And I had a grin on my face for two, two hours and 20 minutes. So congratulations. Thank you. That was the point. The point was really to, to um, you know, there's a minefield of expectations that people have about beloved um, uh, characters and worlds and you're never going to please everybody yeah um but and you kind of have to have enough armor um i don't even think i uh, have developed it enough to kind of deal with the people who somehow get uh outraged even before they've seen your movie but the um the reality is that uh that to me it was making you know it's a difficult thing to describe making a film that was emotionally honest but at the same time, not losing track that it is a screwball action picture that, yeah, that yeah. and, and, you know, uh, Phoebe would, would, would often would, could tell you about this. I often brought up with her, you know, the Preston Sturgis film, the lady Eve, um, mm -hmm. and Barbara Stanwyck in that film in particular, when I was thinking and we were writing her character and, um, and, you know, it's kind of this beautiful, charming rogue who has a heart of gold, although she's a complete nefarious uh and selfish right. character at least when you meet her in the beginning of the picture and um that for me that quality not just of the lady eve in terms of phoebe's character but in terms of wit um uh action double crosses turns heart when you get down to it the indiana jones films yes they're action movies but they're at their heart they're also just love letters to golden age cinema a thousand percent. One thing I think that, that look, when you were announced, I, I was so hardened because, again, there's a very short list of filmmakers I would trust this with. And I think one of the reasons you were great for this, I, if I can an analyze this for a second, is because we've had this conversation about franchise filmmaking and about like you're not one to like and it, it like it speaks volumes what you were saying before i'm not going to just hit a release date just because i have to like you're not interested in selling lunch boxes you're interested in selling a store or telling a story and one thing i think you really achieve in this we talk a lot about fan service in in years and i, I want to hear from you like was that a balance was that something like look you want to make something in the vein you want it to feel 
like an Indiana Jones movie, but like you could have weared a lot more in. You could have had Mads be like, it's Belloc's son. Uh, you could have had, you know, well, it, every. It, it gets silly. <laughs> it gets silly at a certain point. And it's the term fan service is, uh, makes it sound so uh, dirty. Right. Um, it, it, Checking it, the box. And, yeah. And um, uh, I am a fan of Indiana Jones films. I have no problem jumping into the world. I mean, I feel the same way about Star Wars movies, and I certainly felt that way when I made Logan. You can make a different movie, but also love what's come before. You sure. can make a different movie and also bring back elements that have existed before. <clears throat> it's part of even, you know, my favorite Indiana Jones film is Raiders of the Lost Ark. Okay. So, um, and I have other favorites, but that's number one. And not only, but also because it's number one and it's where the world started. But the filmmaking is, the craft is so exquisite from the writing on upward in that movie. You know, in the first five minutes when Indy runs into Bullock, it's not a new character. He goes, you are Bullock. There's history, I know. There's history. There could have been a movie before. There could have been a movie between the two of them that happened before this movie. Yeah. When, so it's kind of fan service for phantom movies. When he meets Karen Allen for the first time, she belts him. That's their first moment together. She she flattens him. Yes. So, uh, well, what's that based on? The movie that happened before the movie. So yeah. what's when you're working in the shoes and in the shadows of such great dramatists and filmmakers like I am on this project, you're dealing with people who even do fan service to their own original movie, to the movies that didn't exist. Meaning they create backstory. You arrive in each scene in media res. The characters know each other. They're not all intro. My name is Belak and I'm here to take this from you. They are, they are people who have history. Yeah. And so... I just followed that form. In my case, there were movies that preceded me. So some of the people who march in and out are characters we know. Um, one character we, we don't see, and I'm just curious, because like in the last year, he, he Kwan had an amazing year. Was there ever an iteration? Like, do you have regrets when you saw how amazing he was back on screen again? Like, oh wait, he's got the chops now as an adult. Like, did you ever consider bringing Short Round I back? Was blown, I was blown away by his work in Everything Everywhere. And I, um, but, that movie was shooting while we were making our movie and right. i was looking for a kid meaning i had written this concept that required indeed and helena and um at the point i was thinking of how we could introduce uh, you know uh k it was it, it it i didn't have a space for another adult to come in the movie and have anything that wouldn't be more than kind of the worst kind of cameos so the plus he was actually shooting and uh but the I was looking for K at 13, meaning I was right. looking to introduce what I felt like was a kind of staple of these films as family films and also um, as as uh, in terms of just having the energy of a young person in the picture, a really young person, like a child. Yeah. Do you, okay, so, so th th this task completed and hopefully you're, in, you're exhaling and enjoying the, the victory lap as it were. Do you have, like, I don't know, there's been so much talk. Obviously, Harrison's been a thousand percent clear. He's never playing Indiana Jones again. And seemingly no one else is ever playing Indiana Jones again. I, I think we all agree. We hope that's the case. That seems like the right call. Do you do you have interest or conversations about doing anything else in the world? Um, I know there was the Ravenwood show that was being developed. Were you involved in that? Is Or is this kind of like... I, I looked at what they were developing for that show, but I think it was it was 
purely speculative in terms of whether that show was going to happen, but it had nothing to do with Indiana Jones. It was the world, but it was not, um, a, you know, I'm busy. I'm, I'm only uh, eight weeks out on, on a complete unknown. So yep. I, I'm busy um, making a radically different movie right now. But the, um, and that's how I kind of have conducted my whole career um, and is always trying um, to vary things in size and scale. And I certainly don't want to be just, uh, it, it, there's nothing wrong with it, but I, the kind of IP or sequelized world um, has, is its own beast. And um, it's not a place I want to live permanently. It's a place I, I like to visit and do something. If I feel like I have something I can say, right. um, that makes the movie stand on its own. I have, and I've probably kissed off a lot of work um, just by saying this, but I have kind of no interest in being part of a universe. Right. Obviously every movie is a part of the larger world of its, but what I mean by that is that at the point the film between its fade in and its fade out becomes the curtain up and curtain down becomes less significant than how it's handing off to another enterprise to follow means that I'm again without a compass as our conversation opened. I don't know how to do that. That just feels like I'm making the world's most expensive TV show, yep. um, an episode of the world's most expensive TV show. And one episode comes out every year and a half. And um, I get lost in that process because right. I don't know how to tell the story and bring it in for a landing. We talked a lot when Logan came out and um, that was su such an exceptional goodbye to that character. Is there any part of you, look, we're excited. We're, it'll be fun to see Hugh obviously back in Deadpool in that context, sure. a much different kind of a movie. At the same, same time, is part of you like, wait, we had the perfect send off and this lessens the impact a tad for what Logan delivered at the end? Well, yes and no. I mean, there's a part of me that 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 uh, felt we stick the landing, but we did it. it. The great thing about movies is, again, I'm just not that meta. I'm I'm much, you know, maybe there's a good reason Harrison and I get along so well. Maybe I'm just really very practical very old, and just I'm a very yeah. old man hiding in in a <laughs> slightly younger man's body, but the the but the reality is I just we did end Logan well. Yeah. And it did have its impact and continues to. And I'm not really sure that anything diminishes it or takes it away. Um uh, in any real way, um, that, that the thing, if it, if it works, it works. And, and it's not like the new mo movie Hugh and Ryan are working on takes place after Logan. So he doesn't, uh, so, um, in a sense, they're just making a prequel, if you will. And, right. and, and tonally, you know, um, because I've talked with them about this, uh, I even was, uh, heavily talking with about him a few years ago. Um, you know, I'm imagining it's going to be some kind of midnight run or 48 hours with these two guys just on the run. It sounds amazing. And, yes. And, yes. And <laughs> uh, it sounds fun as hell. And, and I don't think so because I don't think in universes, I just think in movies, I think we did it, you know, yep. and, and there's plenty of wonderful films that have had 
sequels that were different or not quite the same or and if things don't work they vanish that yeah <laughs> and yeah. if they work that's awesome so you know right so having said that about kind of you know not thinking in terms of universes you were though developing the x23 or a film for a time. Did, did you ever have a script for that? Like how far did that I go? Never, I never had a script. I started, I started working on a story and, um, but I don't think of that as a universe. I just loved the character. And I thought Daphne is such an incredibly dazzling actress. I mean, I thought, um, you know, you talk about gambles on movies, the amount of weight we put on an 11 year old girl in that movie. Um, I mean, it's happened paper moon with Tatum O'Neill right. or the exorcist. Um, uh, there's movies where the child performance just shocks everyone in its depth, but the, um, she was so miraculous in that movie and fierce. And, and I think people responded on so many levels to it. You know, even people with just difficult children um, uh, uh, <laughs> recognized the recognized Logan's plight, trying to kind of uh, deal with her. And the, um, but I was really curious about how that would work. But it happened at exactly the moment um, Disney bought Fox. And, casualty of the merger. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and then then interestingly, at that point, there was no interest in in continuing any semblance of what had been the Fox uh marvel universe um but my how things change and suddenly uh, you know. <laughs> mutants are hot yeah. again yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now we talked for logan noir are we going to see uh dylan in black and white or color Do, have you considered any uh black and white films in your filmography since the only nervousness i'd have about making the dylan movie i'd love to make one the uh, dylan in black and white is that i just feel like we'll just be trying to look like you know don't look don't look now or but don't look right. back Sorry. don't look back yeah of course yeah don't look now is in color but also <laughs> uh the, um but um uh but it's it's an interesting question because it's you know one of the big tricks and problems that is maybe on a 45 minute show is worth talking about but one of the challenges for filmmakers making black and white films is they really they let you do it as an option but the reason studios resist it as at least this is what I encountered last time I kind of was thinking about this on a movie. The reason they resist it, or don't even resist it, refuse it, isn't just that they don't think audiences will embrace a black and white film, but that they actually have output output deals around the world with with streamers or cable channels that make color a requirement of the release, meaning that if you make a black and white film for a certain studio, it means that it will not air. They cannot, right. it, it falls out of certain output deals. It, it may not be interesting to anyone, but business people, but it's uh, it creates this huge financial crisis beyond the executive, studio executive assumption that people don't like black and white. Yeah, I've heard that even like applying to like international, like it can't go yeah. overseas, it had the, the expectation, yeah. So it's, it's it's also yes so so uh, whenever the international community gets high and mighty about thinking they're only supporting great <laughs> movies with someone should remind them that they keep any black and white films even i think alexander payne had to shoot nebraska they had to shoot it in color yeah. and make it black and white because of yep. i think either a, a, some asian release where they required to yep. deliver a color a color film 
Um, let's hit upon the Dylan movie just because you are, I'm sure that's like occupying 80% of your brain even now. Um, it's got all my favorite people, man. I know this one's been brewing for a while. Uh, Timmy Chalamet, I caught up with Elle Fanning recently. She was very excited. You guys almost worked together on the Patty yes. Hearst movie. I know, uh, Benedict is going to be yeah. your Pete Seeger inspired yeah. casting. Congratulations on that. Um, I guess my first question is Dylan involved. Like, have you? Do you want his participation? Have you talked to Dylan? Has Timmy interacted with Dylan? I've, or spent, what? I've spent I've spent several um, wonderfully charming days in his company, just one on one talking to him. Um, yes, and wow. um, uh, um, I have I have a script that's personally annotated by him and uh, treasured by me. And uh, <laughs> and um, and he's a wonder. You know, he loves movies. You know, and so sure. one of my one of you know um, the, when I first the first time I sat down with Bob, you know, one of the first things he said to me was, "I love Copland, man," and and a man after my like, own heart. Oh my you know how god. much I love that one. Oh my god, <laughs> you know, the, good taste. Um, but uh, 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 no, this is. And by the way, it's not really a Bob Dylan biopic. What's interesting and always was interesting about it to me, and I think interesting. The reason Bob's been so supportive of us making it is it's about, I, as in all cases, I think the best true life movies are never a cradle to grave, but they're about a very specific moment um, yep. in, in someone's life. And in this case, it's kind of, I don't know that I'd, uh, it might be presumptuous to call it Altman-esque, but it's a kind of ensemble piece about this moment in time in the early 60s in New York and this 17-year-old kid with... $16 in his pocket who hitchhikes his way to New York to meet Woody Guthrie, who is being kept in a hospital and is dying of a nerve disease and sings Woody a song that he wrote for him and befriends Pete Seeger, who's like a son to Woody. And Pete sets him up with gigs in local clubs. And there you meet Joan Baez and all these other people who are part of this world. And this, 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 wanderer who comes in from Minnesota with a fresh name and a fresh outlook on life becomes a star assigned to the biggest record company in the world in a year and three years later is has record sales rivaling the Beatles and uh, and the upheaval in what was the folk community and what they felt was proper folk and illicit folk or um all has tremendous relevance even now um, uh, uh, because of the way we're all so tribalized and we make rules about what, what our music should be or what the rules are of how we speak or how we express ourselves. And Bob from the beginning has been someone who is always pressing against those boundaries and um, or not even recognizing them. I think that's one of the most beautiful things I saw and felt upon meeting him is he's still puzzled why they were so angry after Newport in 1965. Because, yeah. you know, for him, um, I think it's really clear that, 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 you know, he loved Buddy Holly. He loved Little Richard. He loved, you know, he listened to rock and roll. He didn't come to New York to become a folk sensation. He just wanted to make music. And folk is what happened and what was happening at that moment. But his dream of playing in a band, you know, he saw Buddy Holly and the Crickets, you know, a couple months before they died. Uh, and his dream of being in a band, in a rock band, was the primal dream of his life. And so it wasn't like he was rejecting anything as much as just trying to evolve 
Um, and, and it's such an interesting explosion of drama in this community in that moment in 1965 when he went electric um, and the way he was viewed as a kind of Judas or a betraying angel to the movement that he had uh, lifted into stardom. It's we know Tim world and Timmy is gonna um, Timmy is working his ass off right as we speak and so uh, we know he's got the acting chops how's uh how's the singing is he pre-recorded the songs or is he singing live we've been, we've been in rehearsals musical rehearsals and we lay we, we lay things down just to learn from them but the 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 music is incredible and he's incredible um I um I couldn't have more confidence in him and in all the others joining in. Um, and I think, you know, not unlike making an Indiana Jones movie, the expectations are high, um, but so is the camaraderie and the love among us. We've all been essentially working on this movie for the last three years. Um, so um, there's a lot, there's been a lot of preparation. You know, when COVID took us offline, no one stopped um, writing, rehearsing Timmy playing guitar um, and working uh, all the, you know, probably took it with him through every dune and probably was playing guitar as he was riding a worm. What's that music in the dune trailer? Oh, yeah. Dylan. Yeah. <laughs> Another what I would imagine will be a long gestation period. We'll talk about this for years, but um, you're just in the infancy, presumably, of the Star Wars project. Um, but again, the prospect of you, Star Wars, I'm excited, sir. Um, there, there, you were you were more than dabbling. You were down a road at one point. Correct me if I'm wrong on a on a Boba Fett film. Yes, like did that did that is that anything like what Mandalorian or Book of Boba Fett became, or was it a totally different kind of kettle of fish? Well, I, uh, at the point I was doing it, I, I was probably scaring the shit out of everyone, but I was probably making much more of a uh, borderline rated R kind of uh, um, spaghetti Western, uh, uh, single planet, the spaghetti Western. Um, there probably would, the world would never uh, be able to <laughs> embrace Baby Yoda if I had made uh, that. So the, um, because it didn't really belong in the in the world I was kind of, envisioning but the um but it kind of just uh, in a moment of kind of uh corporate re realignment after whatever went ha happened with the han solo movie um they just suddenly decided they weren't making pictures like that and i think the opportunities in streaming um presented themselves um You've made my heart break a little bit just hearing about that, Jim. Just yeah, the, the, was, that, that, I mean, that it was a beautiful period. I was just listening to Ennio Morricone all day, all night, um, <laughs> and and typing away. But the um, but the the I'm not sure whatever would have happened. I'm not sure um, that it was in anyone's plans what I what I was thinking about. But now, okay, and again, I know we can't get into detail because it's a long road, but what you're planning is prior to everything we've ever seen in the Star yes. Wars universe. So that gives yes. you free reign, which again. Yes, the, uh, I mean, that, that, that is, that is uh, uh, not even, you know, when, when I talk to some of the, you know, the, the Star Wars clerics who, who keep track of all these timelines, I was like, so when would this have happened? And and they were like, 25,000 years before episode one. 
And I was like, oh, I was looking for some distance, but that's distance. The, if we uh, have to go back that far, we'll do it. If that gives uh, me do what it. I need. I'll, I'll do it. it might, <laughs> I might find Charlton Heston in a in an abandoned subway station with some apes, but I'll do it. The uh um the but the um the reality for me was was that that feeling of space, um uh pun not intended, but apropos, um was was something that I felt was really important, not to get away from, again, fan service or, or the intricacies of what George had set up and dreamed of, but to just have the space to tell a story and not be instantly encumbered with the bases you have to hit, yep. um, which honestly, there's no way to explain it um, to folks other than to say it's like that game we played as kids, Twister. If at a certain point, um, you're in a tangle and uh, because you just are trying to kind of find a way to tell a story with, with your, in so many um, constraints that, that you can't. I, I would imagine you interacted, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, did you interact with George on, on the indie film and have you talked to him at all about your what you're planning for Star I have Wars? Not, I have not had a chance to talk to him at all about what I'm thinking on this. He ha he was involved and read the script and was and had and was a Ford Ferrari fan. I'm told and nice. uh, and um, the um, and um, but I um, it'd be very interesting to talk to him. I mean, I'm a little I'm very protective of myself in the sense of like like even describing meeting Bob. Um, Dylan in relation to the Dylan film, I like to have my shit together before I before I get into those kinds of situations because yep. there's every good idea skates at the very edge of being precipitously awful. So that the and every safe idea never gets toward that edge. So the 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 trick is always to develop your idea enough that you're compatriots and 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 consultants and and mentors can understand how you're avoiding going over the edge right um as not just daring it and the um so um obviously as a writer i am on strike right now so those solutions and that process is not going to happen right now we do know last thing on star wars that we do know that this is about basically the the dawn of, of the force the discovery of the force i mean Am I going to hear the word Jedi or midi-chlorian in your movie? <laughs> I don't want to make any guarantees one way or another, but it would be before um, uh, Jedi um, in the, it, it, meaning you might be experiencing something that might become Jedi. Got it. But it, it, they, uh, despite the fact other people make movies other ways, I don't tend to think people brand themselves before they've actually found themselves. So the, you don't come up a name, a name for your organization because- Let's call it the force. You know, <laughs> <laughs> what I just experienced. And then, and then we'll, and then let's put this big thing on our chest. And, uh, and uh, the, um, right. I tend to think that the branding tends to happen later. Fair enough. Um, and, and yet one more project I do want to mention. Um, again, I expect very early days, but you're a Swamp Thing fan. I take it. Does that go way yes. back? What's the it what's goes the way the, back? And basically, the second I heard that DC was going through some leadership convulsion um, and James was taking over, um, uh, I just saw it as an opportunity to throw my hat down in the most. I mean, I just called them and I said, in all the stuff you're doing, um, 
if the idea of me making a kind of gothic horror film origin story of Swamp Thing fits in, um, tell me. And and I go, I'm not. I and I, I, you know, it's no different speech than anyone else gets with me. I'm not really. I don't have any agenda for a universe. I'm not right. building towards someone joining in some uh, uh, future. Have at it. Uh, but but I'd just be interested in telling. Um, I've always been interested in doing a version of Frankenstein, basically, and and yet I feel like you know it's alive has been done enough. So the yes. um, uh, uh, but Swamp Thing always occurred to me as kind of this wonderful uh, version of a kind of Frankenstein story, um, much in the way you know one of my favorite pop films of of growing up robocop the original one was is such you know this this guy who just wakes up and he's been turned into he finds he's become this kind of yeah. machine also something that i was fascinated with with logan obviously but the but um but to me the idea of making kind of almost a kind of noir mystery horror film about a guy who wakes up um, and he's this thing and he's there's an amnesiac quality uh, of of like how did i get here and who did this to me and um so i'm envisioning kind of a horror noir film following a creature that can't be seen trying to piece together from fragments of memory what happened and who did it um, I can, I can, I can see why James Gunn said yes. That's that's intriguing. <laughs> and none of this runs. And none of this runs counter, obviously, to the Len Wein and and Bernie Wrightson and all the yeah. great work that went on. Um, which was which. I mean, it's not like I I'm just framing it up in yes. a kind of new movie context. But that's all they were exploring um, in these comics, and and so beautifully. So I, I, I would, it's presumptuous to talk rating before you've even written a script, but does the nature of that kind of material necessitate in your mind potentially an R rating? Has that even come up in conversation? It hasn't come up in conversations. And I think that, you know, my favorite thing about, we've probably talked about this before, but my favorite thing about rated R isn't that I can say fuck or that we <laughs> can show naked people or more blood, which all obviously happens, um, can happen with that rating. But then when you when you make a rated R movie, the entire marketing uh, apparatus of a studio understands that they cannot dream uh, on this particular picture of action figures, lunchboxes, um, and special tie-ins to get children to this movie. And it, it changes the way the script is perceived, meaning that, you know, like to use an example in Logan, Pretty early on in the picture, there's a, I think it's almost an eight minute scene between Patrick Stewart and Hugh Jackman inside that, uh, that tip the silo, yeah, silo yeah. A water tower that you can't do an eight minute scene between two men over, uh, two men over 40, uh, uh, entirely dialogue, one of them in a wheelchair talking about their past in a movie that's designed for you yeah, know that action people. figure set doesn't sell a lot that no that it, it's not a it doesn't seem your your studio is gonna go i don't know fast x seems like it's speaking more my language but the 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 reality is the rating suddenly creates tremendous space yeah even if you're not using the rating for what it's designed for it it creates a kind of understanding of who this movie is for 
And um, that's really a, a real advantage. I'm going to let you go, but just so you know, Russell Crowe did the podcast recently. Uh, he's still ready to explore that character one more time from 310 to Yuma. I love it. <laughs> I love it. The, uh, the I actually had a whole idea that he, I, I had this whole idea that he was going to circle back um, to to their house and kind of, I had an idea of a scene where, where Logan Lerman wakes up and he hears something and and he comes out to the front porch and someone's kind of cut some firewood or something and he sees you know russell riding off like that that he has this uh because uh, i always thought uh, russell was pretty attracted to christian's wife in that picture any gretchen right. who, how could you not be but the um but um i love russell and i love to hear it but uh no more universe building let's just yeah, make, I gotcha. <laughs> make your dylan movie um, okay Congratulations, man. Um, look, we didn't even get to Copland, one of my favorites of yours. Let's have a longer conference. Maybe one of those anniversaries. I'd love to dig deep into the history sure. of that one. Um, congratulations, though. Look, the bar of difficulty was insane on this, and uh, you really delivered. It's so satisfying and Thank a you, great, gosh. a true, truly great send off to one of the best characters of all time. Um, well, it's also a great personal experience, I have to say. Um, the, you know, there's that old adage, don't meet your heroes, but this experience proved it wrong. I had such a great time with everyone involved. You know, Stephen has been such a wonderful, supportive, paternal figure to me making this movie. And John Williams is one of the m most inspiring humans I've ever met in my life. Um, yeah. Just the kindest, most wonderful Queens jazz player who somehow got the chance to become maestro to the world and through tremendous talent. And um, is just also remains one of the most childlike and charmed and artistic people I've ever met. So it's been just a joy. Amazing. Bonus points for that. Uh, congrats again, man. I'll see Thanks, you on the next bye. one. Thanks, buddy. Be right, good. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Yep, you too. And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. Ha <laughs> ha